what it tries to do is rather than helping you do tasks faster, never a great idea, it tries to reduce the number of tasks that you have. So you can say, okay, I'm going to return to my emails later in the day that I've categorized loosely, and I'm going to deal with those five emails through Project X, or I'm going to deal with those four emails from Steve. And suddenly you've got what's nine separate little emails have become two tasks. Do the things for Steve, do the things for Project X. You're listening to Andy Mitchell, founder of one of my favorite email productivity tools, Active Inbox. Here's the funny thing about today's interview. I entered this interview planning to talk all about email productivity and Active Inbox, but we actually spent an amazing amount of time digging deep into product development and how to really soar as a solopreneur against the big guys. You're going to learn some great tips in this interview, so listen on because Andy is today's guest on Solopreneur Success. Welcome to the Solopreneur Success Podcast, where successful business owners gather to share true stories and sound advice to help you start and grow your own solopreneur business. Come soar with us and design the life you love. Now, here's your host, Steve Combs. Hello, solopreneurs. This is Steve Combs here today with Andy Mitchell. I'm really excited to bring Andy to you because when I started this podcast, I was thinking about who would I invite on? And, and believe it or not, Andy was one of the very first people I had in mind because he created the tool Active Inbox. Active Inbox is a tool I've literally used for years to make my email manageable. So I don't have a million emails in my inbox or I, I can't manage what's going on. But it's much better than that. It's actually an entire project management system. I am just so excited to have Andy here with us today. We're going to talk not just about Active Inbox, but kind of his journey and how that came about. And we're going to have a lot of great stuff for you today. So I'll just shut up and let him talk. Andy, thank you for coming on the show today. Thanks, Steve. Hey, so I just really want to know from you, how did Active Inbox come about? I was an early adopter, I think, several years back. But how did this come around in the first place? Well, several years would be, I'm embarrassed to say this, something of an understatement. I think we're now year 14, maybe. But it is Genesis, and I'll, I'll come on to this, is it wasn't the beautiful shining of a, the sun didn't beam down. It didn't just appear on the landscape. It was underappreciated from the start by me. And that was part of the learning journey, I think, of becoming a solopreneur. The, the actual story goes right back to possibly a story of addiction almost, to childhood. So I, I grew up in Northern England on a very rural farm. I mean, maybe not by American standards, but in Britain, it's very unusual to be half a mile from the next house. So very little in way of, how should you say, entertainment. And uh, technology was really, we're talking here mid to late 90s, technology was only just coming online. And my mum had a computer, which was a very useful thing to start with. And it was through that that I realized my family are all, they're makers of various kinds. My uncle's great at whittling wood. My other uncle likes aircrafts. You know, there's, there's something physical about everything that they're into. And then there was me, with the geeky end of the family. And I had the will to make stuff and not the dexterity. But keyboards don't require dexterity. And so here I am, nine, 10 years old on a farm. Mom has this computer. And then apparently coding is a thing. And I learned that you can actually make stuff. And it's this sort of blank canvas, very small blank canvas. It's just one machine. But you can do stuff. And this was just around the time that the internet was coming. And more than anything else, I think the motivator initially was the adage that you was at the time, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. So uh, I'm like, okay, I'm a kid. No one's going to buy anything from a kid. But no one has to know that. I can just, I can call it the Mitchell Corporation. 
until my mum told me that, in fact, that was legal and I cannot just go around saying corporation. But so, yeah, I had this, uh, this motivation. Okay, cool. I can make stuff at last. And it didn't need to go with hands. And actually, with the internet, it wasn't just one computer anymore. Now we're talking about painting on a giant canvas. Anyone can create. And for the first time in history, you didn't need a million dollars to make something and you didn't need a million dollars to promote it. And this is something actually I will harp back to is for all of us now trying to make our way online with distribution and marketing stuff and everything else, it shifted from who has the most advertising dollars and it's become who can produce the most quality. And that's kind of what spreads now because of social media and you know, you imagine people just go on Instagram and say, hey, look, it's cool stuff I saw and et cetera. And, and it flows that way. Back then, that was a very sort of hazy idea in my head other than there were products out there that you know the one product i wish i could have made i don't know if you remember this steve was stumble upon so it was a browser plugin where you could click a big button and it would take you somewhere completely random on the internet that is every bit as dangerous as it sounds but at the same time it had the simplicity and the creativity and then the shock factor and it, it just felt wonderful to me and, and i knew someone had built it basically in their bedroom so it felt accessible it felt doable life on the farm Thankfully to my parents, I think, they realized I was not cut out to shear a sheep. They put me into a Quaker school. I was, you know, for a few years, I lived a very normal life of a teenager until university, where the natural consequence was, what am I good at? I'm good at coding. It's going to make the three years of university pretty easy. And it was, you know, I was, I was lucky to get into a good university. So I thought being easier was probably a good thing because the challenge was already quite high. And so, yeah, so I did computer science university, popped out the other end, thought, oh, Time to get a job, you know, convey a belt of life, do the normal things that people do. And I'm sure this is actually very true of the US as well. There are areas of the UK that are very heartlandish, industrial, that kind of thing. And that's, that's where I'd grown up. And uh, so I went to work in a factory. But it was a factory that was, they had ambitions to be the biggest bandsaw manufacturer in the world. That was their thing. And they were already pretty good. They've been going for 100 years. What they were not good at was they had amazing machines, but no computerization. So an order would come in, a sweet old lady would take it and write it down and then get, play a game of uh, professional telephone. And it would pass around the factory. So everyone would transcribe the order as it went around from person to person. And maybe what was shipped out the front door was vaguely related to the order that had come in. And so they said, here you go, Andy. Here's a 100-year-old company that employs 50 people. Please completely change the workflow of the organization, which is insane. Like, you should never ask a 21-year-old straight out of university to do that. It's crazy. But they did. And it was great fun. But despite this, what I thought at the time was a great opportunity, I couldn't help but find myself be bored. And this is something that I think, again, with any career, but definitely with a solopreneur where you can pretty much do anything you want, knowing your strengths and weaknesses is key. And mine is absolutely a lack of discipline. So I'm always kind of running off with different ideas and fluttering off. And so very slowly, over the course of a year, I pulled back. So I was working five days a week, then four, three, two, and one. And around, and in that time, I was building little products and, you know, little things quick to build, spread quickly because of the nature of the internet. So one was called Bumble Search. And it, when you searched on Google, it pulled in automatically, visually, results from Amazon and eBay and other different vertical searches and had it all in one place. It got to 30,000 users. What you got to remember is I'm 22 at this point. I've got no idea what's easy, what's hard in the world. To me, this seems really easy. So I'm like, great, I'll just keep building stuff. Like, there was no kind of thought that this was a lucky era or whatever else it was. Um, what about, just stop back a second. No, what about what time frame is this roughly? Yeah, so we're talking 2004. I graduated. 
So this was Web 2.0 was re- literally just coming of age. So Web 2.0 had been the crash in Silicon Valley. Everyone thought computers were dead. A terrible time to graduate from computer science. And then around, for the listeners who, who aren't nerds of, of tech history, Flickr was the one that changed it. So Flickr was made by the same people that went on to make Slack. And it was a way of photo sharing. And they basically latched onto a new bit of technology that meant user-generated content was suddenly, like, people put their photos up online and it created a huge stir of excitement. Everyone's like, wow, we can make products again. This is great. And Firefox was coming of age. And it was just a very fertile time for creating apps. And, but part of me was very much thinking, okay, I'm down to three days of real work a week. My parents still exist. They are a thing. They have certain opinions about what appears to be an entirely feral child. And maybe I should have some concept of real work. And so I thought, I'll sit down and I will create a startup with a business plan and everything else, the checklist of business 101 says you need to have. And uh, I even co-founded it. I pulled in the guy from university and we were all very sensible. And I mean, you can tell from my tone, this, this idea failed. And it failed. There are so many lessons about that failure and I'll happily come back around if you want me to. Yeah, um, sure. But one of the things that came out of that whole thing was... I was so sure it's going to be a huge and multi-billion dollar success that I naturally built a customer support tool before we'd even released anything. And that customer support tool was a simple little app that added ticketing to Gmail, partly because I was cheap and I thought, don't pay Zendesk $100 a month, let's just do this with a free little tool built over Gmail. Partly because Gmail was comfortable, it's where, it's where I knew and it was where I was efficient. So... This was the genesis of Active Inbox. This was the very first ever version. And it was thrown out into the wild with about as much ceremony as any of the other little ideas I'd had got. And I went back to being a proper grown-up, working on the proper business. And within not very long of failing with that first startup, which was called MeCard, it was like coming out of a heavy relationship. And I was very much on the rebound, emotionally a little bit down. And I was flattered when someone came up to me and said, I'd seen you present on stage at what was called the Future of Web Apps. It was a small stage. And they said, oh, you'd be so wonderful to join our company. You'd be perfect. And I, I blushed and I, I fluttered and I, I felt flirted with. And I said, of course, I'll join your startup. And fast forward nine months, that one crashed and burned in horrible politics. So now we're at a point where I've tried to start two things. Both have failed. Meanwhile, the third thing, the one I'm not trying to start and what became Active Inbox, people were asking to donate money. Now, this is before Kickstarter and crowdfunding and everything else. And all I could think was, gosh, that sounds like hard work, bureaucracy, tax, uh, you know, unsolicited money. That, I'm not a lawyer, but that doesn't sound great. And so I kept trying to push it off. And I, I did what every cliche 20-something did. And I was in Thailand living on $20 a day. And as I went into an internet cafe and I found an email from a chap in America who'd sent $300 via PayPal, unsolicited, and just said, keep it going. And I can tell you at the time, $300 on $20 a day was, you know, that was Ferrari money. That was, that was a big time. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Suddenly I was like, I try and start something the proper way and it fails. Something I've created actually has meaning and it's going without me whether I want it to or not. And I'd better get along for the ride if I actually want to make good on it. And I think... I mean, we'll go with whatever you want to talk about, whatever you think the solopreneurs want to hear. But very much, I think, distribution is the hardest thing you'll ever face as an entrepreneur. And building a product is probably, if it's successful, it's probably the most effective form of distribution you can have. If your business is something else, service business, whatever it is, 
ebooks, software, PR events, whatever it is, they will spread on your behalf while you're asleep. And I think that's a wonderful thing. But the actual skill of like, how do you create one of those little product ideas? Obviously, if it was easy, then probably wouldn't work. I mean, it's a very hard thing to achieve. Um, so I'm very happy to talk about a few things I've learned about that. But otherwise, yeah, I mean, it's, it was a journey of wanting to be a product maker and, and somehow got lucky, I think, is <laughs> perhaps the takeaway of, of that story. Yeah, well, one thing I heard that I, I take away from that is the product that actually worked, unlike the first two failure launches, was rather than put together what you think the world wanted, the world's coming to you saying, this is what I want. And that's really key to success is knowing what somebody wants. And sometimes the easy way to know, is that really what somebody wants is, are they willing to put their money where their mouth is? Everybody might say they want something, but if they're willing to pay for it, then you know you have something that's worthwhile because it, it brings enough value for to have that exchange of value. So how did people first hear about you to start sending you money in the first place? What, what was going on? Were you like putting this active inbox beginnings out into the world and saying, hey, check us out? Or how, what did that look like? Yeah, so this kind of goes hand in hand with, with what I was saying with, with the beautiful nature of the internet now where there are plenty of vehicles by which things can spread. So you kind of got, you've just got to create something. Um, and now, of course, we have Instagram and Twitter and TikTok and you know, all these other things. But they're all vehicles by which people go, hey, I've seen this great thing. And I tell someone else about it. And then back in 2006, which I think actually was launched, Firefox add-ons were the thing. So now everyone uses Chrome and Chrome add-ons are the thing. But back then it was Firefox and they had a, they had a directory. And if you were suitably nerdy to be using Firefox in 2006, you probably went and looked at the directory and thought to yourself, oh, what else can I add to it? And so you had this footfall coming through. And Actuinbox got picked up slowly at first, but it didn't feel slow. I maintain that 400 downloads was more meaningful to me than 100,000. When you can still imagine everyone stood in a football field, that's more meaningful to me than, than a number I can't imagine. And so, yeah, so those early like numbers were just, it's a bit like when you sell something on an eBay auction, right? Like you love watching that number go, you press refresh and so, so on and so forth. I'm liking how that's going because you know what, with the Slopenor Success Connections community I have right now, it's still in that smaller stage where I can like interact with individuals. There, there are folks here, it's not, you know, 100,000 people in the community. Maybe it'll never be 100,000 people and that's perfectly fine with me. I think it's important to know that when you're growing something new, you can get direct feedback from people. And I, I think that's probably one of the cool things about when you're doing a startup is, is your customers, you can interact with them one-on-one so much more easily and effectively. And by the way, as a customer, you have so much great input you can have to, to companies that say, I like that tool or I like what they're providing. You can give real sound input. Like for example, even in my community, I have folks that they'll email me, they're a member of the community, say, hey, Steve, why don't you try this? Or why don't you do this? Or I listen because a lot of times it's good advice. And sometimes these, these are business owners that are further down the track than I am. And that's fantastic. I'm always open to hearing, even whether they're further down the track or not, we all have opinions and these opinions can be great ideas often. And it's always good to be open to those ideas. What actually created the idea for Active Inbox itself? I mean, this is, this is an email project management tool I would love to hear, where did that genesis of the idea for, for this kind of a tool come from? Well, so you actually asked um, a question, okay, of you have to make something for customers and they have to pay you. And that's like the, the key insight that there's something valuable there. But the question still is of what do you make? 
And that's a big, like, you know, if you ever see, like, step three profit, step two is always a question mark. That's, that's your question mark. And for the longest time, I said it was scratching your own itch. So for me, it was, I had Mikar, the, the proper startup, and I wanted to do customer support. So it was a cheap way of doing customer support, and that was all there was to it. But I think one thing I've changed my mind on is there's only two things you need to get a product off the ground, and you've actually mentioned both of them. The first is the curiosity, and it's kind of enigmatic, and I'll come back to that. The second is, is what you said, is having people that give you feedback. And the faster you can get that feedback, chances are what you make isn't going to resonate with people. So just make lots of stuff. And I was doing this, but I didn't realize I was doing this. I was just building little products without care in the world. Fast forward to today, and I've lost that ability because now there's some form of reputation, however small it is, amongst our customer base. Embarrassed and scared of releasing something because what if it fails? But early on, I didn't have that. And that's what it took to find the thing. And they, startup schools will always recommend throwing stuff out as don't give it more than two weeks. See what you can prototype in two weeks, then get someone on the phone, talk to them, and then that's a great thing. But the, the enigmatic piece about curiosity, I think, as humans, we're herd, herd animals. We're, we're mimetic in our thing. Monkey see, monkey do. And Peter uh, Thiel, a prominent investor, talks about this. In, 2000 and, in the year 2000, all the MBAs out of Harvard, etc., went into Silicon Valley because that was the rich, exclusive place to be. 2001, it crashed into the dot-com explosion. Um, 2007, they were all going into property investment. And then you had the 2008 crash. And that's the, we're very much, we, it's really hard to break that programming of going where the herd is. But that's always the last problem. And the beauty of curiosity is that takes you into the cutting edge, the stuff that isn't yet and may never be a winning idea. But it gives you a chance. At least now you're in a bit more of a green field and you have a chance of leading that wave yourself. So I think, yeah, if I had to sort of encapsulate those two ideas, the curiosity to get a good gut instinct about what products might be, and then the speed, the velocity to go to customers and say, this prototype, do you like it? No, okay, cool. How about this one? Okay, that one's got promise, right. Okay, how can we build that into something more? And I was lucky to, and much like you have, uh, start a community around, not consciously, basically it was just a blog, but actively listen to people. And so they, that led to more input because once they recognized they were getting listened to, then they would talk more and then they share their ideas with you. And all of a sudden, you don't need to be creative anymore because the ideas are coming to you. All you need is to be as a, a filter that says yes, no, yes, no. So I think the hardest part of any product creation is the first few months. After that, the playbooks are kind of there to, to take it with you. So yeah, that's, that's, we can talk about pragmatics within that, but the, that's, that's my high-level view of it. Yeah, leading up to it, here's an area I think a lot of solopreneurs struggle with. And, and a lot of people have ideas, but they don't know whether it's a good idea. And I like the idea of you know, throw it out there. But then some people, I think they get to a stage where I don't know where to find another good idea. And they get stuck on just one idea. And maybe the idea isn't a winner. So how would you recommend solopreneurs listening to this say, how do you find new ideas? Where do you get these ideas from? You throw in a lot of ideas out there, see what sticks, and then grow it. And I want to come back to another question, too, about growth challenges you mentioned. But, but first, I want to kind of talk about that idea stage. How do you get your ideas up front? Uh, where, where do you find you, you know, you see this opportunity and like, oh, I need to run with that one? I think the thing that's always worked for me has been scratching your niche. So being, not being isolated from the world, which, quite frankly, in, in the middle of coronavirus is quite difficult. 
But, you know, if, especially if you actually work for someone else, this is even easier because you get to see all the frustrations of the office space and people around you. Some people advocate uh, what's known as sales safari, so <laughs> cruising via forums online and seeing what people are complaining about and taking those ideas. But I genuinely think you need the passion that comes from solving your own problem. I found this with MeCard, the original, the online business card that's a prop startup at the start. We quit because I felt it was a bit sales in, I was a bit sickly from it. And I felt Google and Facebook were about to do the same thing. So we're going to get crushed between two giant asteroids and you know, what chance did we have? But the unmentioned part of that story is someone went on to sell that business idea to AOL for $40 million. They just cared enough to continue it. And I didn't, I dropped off. I'm not saying I would have made it, but I definitely wasn't going to make it once I'd quit. And so I think, yeah, scratching your own itch is, is key, but it's, it's entirely secondary to getting it in front of people. And that's hard in itself because no one wants to talk to you. And so often sales advice, uh, sorry, startup advice is don't build anything, talk to people. And the problem is you go to talk to people and they say, well, have you got anything I can look at? And you say, no, 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 actually I haven't. And they say, well, I don't have time for you. You've not proven yourself. Why should I give something to you when you have nothing for me? And so you're in this chicken and egg situation. And so actually being very good at, at prototyping something, even if it's just drawings or you, you manually help them as a service company, establishing that they have a problem, that's, that's key. Yeah, there are certain criteria, I see, I mean, on, on practicalities. Always be solving problems and be solving them for businesses. Don't do anything else. <laughs> no one will ever pay you for anything else and they'll just give you bad reviews and it's very painful. Yeah, and if you can get closer to compliance, things people have to do, that's even better. The company I was always jealous of, I mean, it sounds horrifically boring, but they, I think Australia brought in some government law where you had to retain seven years of all conversations that occurred in the company with customers and some sort of data protection auditing thing. And all the companies in the world simultaneously sighed with frustration. You know, what, a, what an absolute pain that is. And so this other company came in and went, okay, cool, the government's mandated something? Right, we'll make it one click and it's done. And their customer base had to buy them. That was what was so wonderful about it. And that was a bit I was jealous of. Compliance is a wonderful thing. So, at least, for, that, at least for those who are entrepreneurial and can see the opportunity. You know, yeah, you know right? it's funny because I'm, I'm very much on kind of a libertarian mindset. I don't like to have the government mandating things for me. But if it's going to be mandated and you can take advantage of it, why not? It just makes sense from a business perspective to uh, use what's in front of you. And that, that makes a lot of sense. Something else you mentioned earlier that I told you I want to come back to, and I thought this was a great insight, is that when we're getting started, it's very easy to be nimble in business and, and bull, and it doesn't really matter if it fails, no big deal, nobody knows me anyways. But when you grow, the challenge is, okay, now you have a reputation, now you have a, a product or a service or an offer, and once you have this reputation, how do you maintain that? And you kind of get stuck in this position where it's a little bit harder maybe to innovate maybe. And I know some big companies are excellent at innovation. How do you maintain you know, the ability to innovate when you're larger? I know that's a challenge you mentioned, but I know that you also, with your own product, you do continue to expand and innovate. So how do you find that balance? What, what do you look for when you're looking to maintain that balance? So I do, and I, but I feel the fear. The fear is always there. And I was lucky-ish uh, to experience firsthand the Facebook backlash against the wall. So when the wall was rolled out, which is now we know is Facebook, I mean, there's nothing else to it other than that news feed you have. 
the whole world went mad. They said it was insane and take it away and I hate it. And you know, people came out with their pitchforks. And the lesson, for, and then a few months later, everyone's like, oh, wait, no, this is great. Okay, cool. <laughs> you know, this is what made Facebook what it is. First of all, you've got to learn the gut reaction to things is always negative. People just dislike change. And sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong, but you have to at least stick it out for a little while at first. And you have to get good. I mean, I'm about to say something that is personally not true for me, but I know it's correct. And to be any kind of entrepreneur, you have to handle rejection well. I'm awful at rejection. I hate cold calling people. I hate most sales calls. And But ultimately, at best, you'll exist in an echo chamber if you just listen to the positives. For example, say I launch a new feature and I don't try and encourage everyone to take it or even like reach out to new people and say, hey, there's this great new feature. It does this. If it's just a blog, which is where I'm happiest to do it, the only people who comment, the pollers, so either like extremely angry or extremely gratified. And it's great to get that gratification. And I've not had to call someone up and listen to them say no, take to my face. But that's what you have to get good at. And easy to say, hard to do. I think actual mitigating circumstances does depend on the medium. Software, you can release features to a smaller number of people. It's harder, I think, with ebooks and stuff like that. But then, you know, people release little chapters, draft chapters, and see how people respond to that. So actually with books, I take that back. There's loads of examples of people doing toe-in-the-water type stuff. I kind of have to push back a little bit on, on what you said, though, because you said you're, you have to be, but you're not good, but you have been successful. And so I think, in a sense, you're a, you're a case study of proving that you don't have to do the cold calls. You don't have to go out there and do the direct rejection you can actually make a, a successful company and a successful product and get feedback. So since you are actually doing it, I, I'm going to dig a little deeper here. What, you know, yes, you have a blog and I've, I've read your blog a number of times. What else do you do to get that kind of feedback? How do you typically receive that? Do you get it directly? Do, do you have people on your team that manages that kind of gives you a kind of a filter that brings you, okay, this is not really well received or how do you get that information? Because you're clearly getting it somehow. Yeah. So actually, Second to none, the most effective thing is sales calls, but not not cold calls, not hi there, stranger, take my products. But okay, Steve, you've used the product for a few years. Do you mind giving me half an hour? In exchange, I'll give you a new feature or a discount or whatever it is. And you just tell me your problems. I'm going to be your therapist, your productivity therapist. And I can also tell you again, human nature is its own worst enemy. Before every single one of those calls, I think to myself, should I cancel it? I probably heard it all. I'm not going to get that much from it. And I come off and I'm bouncing off the walls of excitement and I've learned something. And I was like, oh, my word, I nearly canceled that call. What was I doing? This was amazing. And because you get more from qualitative feedback, qualitative feedback than pretty much anything else. And there's a huge, you know, everyone knows these days about A-B testing or growth hacking, you know, where you change the color of a button or you try a different bit of copy and see how that works. And it's, it's the Amazon Google Play of when you have millions of visitors, those little like percentage changes in performance make a huge difference. But when you're starting out, it's talking to people is the only way to get that real feedback because humans are amazing at listening and joining the dots and making fresh ideas. So actually, let's hop back to the original question. How do you get ideas? Talk to people and run with what they say and listen to what they say. And they won't tell you the answer. The old Henry Ford adage that's probably not true. If, if you ask people what they want, they would sort of fast a horse. But if you are asking people what they want, and they're probably wrong, so then you apply the five whys, the idea of, okay, they say, I want a button to be blue. You say, why? And I say, well, because it 
I'm always missing clicking it. Oh, okay, so why do you need to click it? And you go, why, 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 all the way down. And eventually you get some nucleus of truth. And then your human brain, the hopeful expert in this equation when it comes to making products, thinks, oh, okay, actually, if we join like that disparate thing they said there with this thing over here, okay, right, now we can create something new. And you take that new idea and then you test that. And I've typically found, and I've read elsewhere as well, you only need to ask five to eight times for feedback on an idea to hear everything you're ever going to hear about it. So it doesn't take long to validate. You're talking one to two days to validate an idea. Yeah, that's terrific advice there. I'm, I'm loving it. And the five whys, I haven't actually talked about that with anybody in a little while. And I'm glad you brought that up because that, that, that's a very useful technique to really get deep into something, whether you're, you know, whether you're writing copy or developing a product, whatever you're doing, if you want to make sure that you're hitting, another reason you might use the five whys, and I've, I've taught this before, is to dig deep into what's not just the feature not just what the surface level benefit, but what's the deep benefit for somebody? What do they really get out of something? And doing that with a product, I've, I've not heard it used in quite that approach before. Um, even though it's the exact same thing, but just applied to product development, I think that's tremendous. And that's a fantastic tip there that I think we definitely want to take advantage of. And I'm going to use that myself. Uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to take on some calls and I'm going to call some folks in my community and uh, say, hey, you know, give me some feedback here. And let me ask you some questions. And why is this working? Why is it not working? What would you like to see? Wonderful tips here. That's fantastic. I would like to take a little time on this podcast and, and talk about Active Inbox itself because I've personally found it a very useful tool. And I, I know for a fact that I haven't even used it to the full capacity. I just, we're all busy people, but it's, it's a wonderful tool. Can you like describe what it does and, and why somebody might want to use it? Because I'm a major fan, but I'd love to hear from the guy who created it. Why did you create this exact tool and, and what does it do for people? This is often quite, so something we should come back to is choosing your audience. So it's so much easier to do marketing than everything else if you actually know exactly who you're talking to. Email makes that so difficult. Email is used by everyone on the planet. There is, there are retired church workers, there are CEOs of major companies, and no one has the same story. So when you ask, what is it that Actuinbox does? I tend to go back to just the most universal truths of Actuinbox. The one that everyone knows is, is obviously email is dead. That's been the, the saying for at least the last 10 years. Apparently, it's doubling every year. And I would say that this is actually perhaps the crux of the problem. It's, it clogs. There are all these little things. They're, they're badly formatted tasks. And they're badly formatted because people put a single question in five paragraphs, and you have to make sense of that. And then the inbox dumps them on you with something related to Project X, something from your mother, a cat video. And then like, there's no continuous mental wave you can work through them with. And it's, it's a fire hose. Just stuff just sprays in at you. And some of it you have to like remember, but most of it just sprays straight past and forms a swamp behind you. And all, all the good stuff sinks into it. You miss opportunities. You forget to reply to customers. And so what Actuinbox does is treat emails like the tasks that they are. It turns Gmail into a task manager. And it does it without having to copy and paste. So I think Outlook tasks create a separate task aside from the email. So now you have two things to worry about, not just one. Uh, Actuinbox is very much about making the email itself the task. It has a due date on it. You can make it part of a project, give it subtask, give it notes, whatever it is. But it was built with the influence of getting things done, the GTD, David Allen philosophy. And he had a Buddhist background of take the pressures of the world and channel them into energy that you can use and don't be overwhelmed in an overwhelming world. Mind like water, I think it's a phrase that always gets used with GTD. And 
That's the ethos that Actionbots has always tried to have. Those emails coming in represent all of them, little tasks, too small to be put anywhere useful like Todoist or Trello or anything else. They're too small for that. But nonetheless, they need some unit of work from you. And what it tries to do is rather than helping you do tasks faster, never a great idea, it tries to reduce the number of tasks that you have. So you can say, okay, I'm going to return to my emails later in the day that I've categorized loosely, and I'm going to deal with those five emails through Project X, or I'm going to deal with those four emails from Steve. And suddenly you've got what's nine separate little emails have become two tasks. Do the things for Steve, do the things for Project X. And so that, that minimization is very much what it's about. And the other thing is just the safety net. I think the culture of email is so, so low expectations. I send an email to Amazon. Amazon, who purports to be the greatest service company in the world. And whether I get an email or not, I don't really expect to. If I do, it's a bit of a bonus, but it's probably not going to be great. If I want some results, I have to phone people up. But that means there's a huge opportunity for you as the entrepreneur to actually delight people by being good at email. They don't want to talk to you on the phone. They just want to send you an email. And so doing that in face of the fire hose and making sure people aren't forgotten is kind of the other thing of actually involved. So reduces the number of tasks you have and then make sure you don't forget stuff. And I mean, even actually in the last week, we're in the process of rolling out a feature that tries to suggest things you might have missed to you. It's like an additional safety net just to make sure, you know, like that question you got two weeks ago didn't get an answer, we'll do something about it. And it's lots of stuff like that. It kind of, you know, you go to reply to an email and it'll pop up with, oh, actually your previous correspondence with Steve you have these two unfinished tasks. So why not incorporate them into this particular response you're sending? And that's it. It's just a safety net. It's a very simple tool and its simplicity is part of its charm, I think. Yeah, one thing I like about it also is you can put like due dates if you want to make sure that you accomplish a task by a certain point. So you can kind of like put it out of mind until when you actually need to handle it. Maybe it's something you need to do next week or, or even next month. And you can just have it come up automatically by that due date and it just works to remind you it's right there in front of your face at the right time. So it's not cluttering up your inbox and you're not constantly thinking about it. That's one of the things of getting things done, David Allen talked about also. So getting everything in a system where you're not constantly thinking about it so your brain can get off of that and go somewhere else. That's one thing I found useful for me is not having to think about the email task that's, that's here in front of me so that I can actually use it again down, down the road. I, I believe the last time we talked, and we actually had a conversation a few months back, and, and you had another uh, project going on too. Tell us a little bit about that. Is that still going on or what, what's, what's happening there? Oh, it's still going on. And this, this brings a full circle to the problems of, of launching once you're uh, vaguely established. Oh, I love to brainstorm new ideas, Steve. Honestly, I do. Do I get around to releasing them? Not so much. There's, um, there are two things in play, one of which is... I'm really interested. There's a resurgence at the moment of email newsletters. And uh, people are now charging money for email newsletters. I'm sure you know this as a, as a content producer. And there are startups out there to help people do it. And it's great. People get rewarded for their hard work. Email newsletters themselves are kind of wonderful. They are much more intimate than social media. You know, you're getting into someone's inbox. And because of that, you know, the writers, they can actually write interesting stuff. They can take you on a journey. They're not just writing clickbait to try and get promoted in Twitter, for example. But given all this wonder about email newsletters, I don't know where they are. I cannot find them. And there's no directory, there's no app store for email newsletters. And it came out of an idea that's actually been built into Active Inbox at the moment. It's, it's a work in progress of, I was building a timing tool into Active Inbox to see how time added up for a few minutes here and a few minutes there on an email. Doesn't mean that much. 
But actually, if a customer has taken four hours this month or the topic of billing has taken 16 hours in customer support, I want to know how that adds up because at that level, making a change, I mean, it free up my time. It'll save money if I'm outsourcing customer support. So that was, that was the idea was, was looking at the metrics of email. And I was like, this time is actually really cool because what it's really telling me is where my attention's going. And if I know where my attention's going, then I know which newsletters are good and which aren't. Because sure, I might open it, but I open it long enough to delete it. Open doesn't really mean anything. What if I stop and read it for two minutes? Well, now we've got, we're talking about a good newsletter. And I thought, you know, if I combine that idea for everyone's read times together, then it would actually start to bubble up and be like, okay, so you're a, a late 30s British person into technology, male, you know, whatever it is. And people like you love reading these newsletters. And it would start giving you suggestions as to what to pay attention to. Or like in the last few months, you might have missed this great newsletter, uh, even if you're subscribed to it. And so, yeah, that was, that's one of the things I'm toying with at the moment. And yeah, hopefully I'm going to get something out in... Maybe this uh, podcast actually is my opportunity to, to force myself to break a habit of the last few years and release it. So yeah, so that's one of them. I, yeah, hopefully we get you on, Steve. The technologist inside of me, I used to be a computer programmer back in the day. And I haven't touched programming since I left my last corporate job. But one thing that came to mind is like, how do you measure that? What if you have like a, you know, a short newsletter that you know, maybe it's like a page of length and then you have a, a long email newsletter and it's, and it's three or four pages in length. And does that go into your algorithm determining of how interesting that is to the reader? And I'm like, are you, my brain is like here. It's just the geeky part of me coming out. That's like, how do you measure that? How do you quantify that between two disparate kinds of newsletters that one has X word count, this has X word count. Maybe you like have to look at, I don't know. I'm, I'm, already going the there with, I'm going there with you. It's like, you know, how do you, how do you measure that and, and compare you know, apples to oranges in a sense? But yeah, that's a cool problem the, um, to solve. The fun thing of that is it's, it feeds actually into the whole solopreneur um, bigger idea of how do you get an audience? And I think from the flip side, so, you know, obviously I've come at it from me as a reader. How do I get interesting stuff for me to read? But the flip side is as a writer, how do you get your audience? And with newsletters, there's no great way of doing that despite them being such a wonderful medium because you own the media, you're in control of that relationship with, with the person you're writing to. And so there's just something beautiful in the idea that email newsletter authors tend to be experts in their domain. They might only be an expert or have things to say for a few months or a few years, and then it tends to get boring. So you often subscribe to newsletters that eventually become boring. But there's evergreen people always coming up and having a way to harness those new authors, getting them in front of people who actually want to hear from them, and then maybe even giving them the feedback and say, look, that last newsletter you wrote, first two paragraphs are great. Third one, everyone went to sleep. Like, and then that means the next time they do a newsletter, the reader gets the benefit of hopefully they're writing more interesting stuff. So it's this constant flywheel of potentially interesting newsletters and helping authors, product makers, entrepreneurs, whoever it is, actually gain an audience along the way. I went to a training last year. The email provider I used for my email list is Aweber. And they did this free training down in Boston and went to it. And they have this interesting tool that at the bottom of their emails, and I, you can use it too as a Aweber. I haven't done it myself, but if you're a Aweber subscriber, use up your email newsletter list. Uh, it's like has this like grid of faces from super happy to the frowny face, right? And you just single click, what did you think about this newsletter or, or respond to this question? And that's a great idea as well that, that they are kind of addressing this as like, you know, what did you think about this? Is my content getting stale? If you start getting more frowny faces, that would be a good way to tell at a glance with a single click for your reader to let you know, hey, you know, you need to step it up because this is this is getting boring and 
kind of give you a, a maybe a leading indicator before the unsubscribe button gets clicked. So that's that's another uh, interesting kind of relationship there. I'm, I'm thinking of that you want to kind of know that, especially if you're if you're if you're the one writing the emails, you want to make sure people are engaged. I'm thankful that you know with my community last I checked it was a couple of weeks ago and it was like a 48 percent uh, open rate. But how many of those are actually read? Like you're saying, like how many are they opening just to click delete? You can look at click-through rates, but not every email is necessarily for the purpose of to get a specific click. I know that some uh, email copywriters will say, well, you need to make sure that every email has a call to action. Even though I teach copywriting, I don't necessarily fall into that camp of writing every single email with a specific call to action. Sometimes I'm just giving value. Sometimes I, I'm learning somebody to something that might be of interest and or usefulness to them. But at the same time, I think it's really important to us, and I like what you're doing with this idea, that we need to know what is our real engagement with our audience. And that engagement is more than simply an open rate, and it can be more than just a click-through rate. You know, that's why we have analytics on our site to see, okay, how long are people really staying here? Are they bouncing after the first page, or are they sticking around longer and visiting additional pages? So you're kind of doing that for newsletters. So I'm really excited to hear about that. Is there a name to that product or something to keep an eye out for? No, but hopefully... By the time this goes live, I'll be able to get you a name. But the, you actually you brought up a point that I want to just come back to and the practicalities of, of entrepreneurship. And it's as things get bigger, as you're beyond the football field of people and you're into the stadiums, the temptation to start referring to people as the audience becomes much ah. more significant. And I do it as well. And in doing so, you lose some of the intimacy and some of the connection that actually probably made you successful in the first place or it will make you successful if you haven't already. There's a great story I heard of, um, so you know Buffer, the social media app, fairly well known, that the delay schedule, sorry, schedule tweeting. So Buffer took over the social media world in 2012. And one of their co-founders, a guy called Leo, he was amazing dealing with the fact no one cares about you at the start. He would pound people personally. He wrote emails to people. He worked out what they did. He read their articles. He complimented them on their work. And of course, I've heard this talk from one of the recipients. And she said, oh, it's all very flattering. Of course, I didn't reply. And it took him six months. And he kept writing. And eventually, she responded. And then he had a test user for the new idea, for the product. And from that, he got feedback that made the product better. But also, he got a testimonial. And then he could say to the next cohort of people that came along, oh, actually, you're not alone. Like Loads of people are using our product now. And suddenly it's a lot easier. This is what I mean. The hardest thing is getting those first people to give you the time of day. And that's what takes that deeply personal thing to get it rolling. And it's what's really easy to lose as you get bigger because suddenly you're like, oh, now I have an audience and I'm going to talk to them as one homogenous blob. Yeah, Um, I can't do that. That's a good point. That wasn't a a suggestion you were, Steve, of course. Oh, no, Um, I know. But that's a habit is there. And something else I would say also is, and I found this true for me, is just ask. What's the worst they do is they ignore you. And the second worst thing is they say no, or maybe later, come back to me. But sometimes when you ask enough people, you're going to get a yes. And you'll be surprised sometimes by exactly who you'll get a yes from. I've been shocked sometimes of some of the yeses I've gotten just because I've asked. Hey, would you be a guest trainer in my community? Would you come on my podcast? Whatever it is. I'm so excited to have you here today. And this has been an awesome conversation. And it's because I asked and, and followed up. And eventually we got got time together here on this call today. I'm so thankful for it. We are kind of, kind of come up on the end of our, our time together. So I don't want to forget, what would be a good place for our listeners to find you and to learn more about what you do and, and the Active Inbox tool as well? 
So I actually have, again, it's, it's part of being an introvert, a relatively small uh, social footprint online. Just come to Active Inbox's website, either Google for Active Inbox or go to activeinboxhq.com. I urge you to come by the blog if you do. I think, I mean, it's, it's not Dickens. You're not going to be fascinated by what I write, but it's nice to have people drop in, drop comments, and you, you'll see that like, all product making is done in the open, feedback comes in the open. So even if Active Inbox or the newsletter products come, isn't quite t- like hitting it for you, just drop me an email. I'd love to jump on the phone and actually solve the problem you do have. That's kind of been maybe how I've survived for 14 years. <laughs> Trust other people's insights more than my own. Just be the tastemaker that decides which ones go through. Fantastic. Well, Andy, I hope to have a, a link for your new product by the time this comes out live. And if not, uh, we'll, try to, we'll try to get that out uh, down the road whenever it does come out. And I'll add it to the show notes because you've done a, a terrific job with Active Inbox. I know the next product uh, will be terrific as well. I just have every expectation. Just here, here, here's that growth thing. You, you know, you now you got a reputation. <laughs> but here's the thing, Andy, you're, you're doing a great job out there. I really appreciate what you're doing. I, I super appreciate you taking the time to come on the show today. I know that the listeners have got a, a ton of value out of this. So thank you. Oh, thank you. It's been, it's, yeah, I highly respect the way that you do these calls. You are, in fact, an excellent listener, which I think if there's any takeaway from this whole conversation that we've had, it's capacity to listen is actually where the good ideas come from for the products and the growth. So yeah, thank you, Steve. Thank you for listening to the Solopreneur Success Podcast. We hope you discovered valuable advice on how to start and grow your own successful solopreneur business. If you liked the podcast, you'll love the all-new Solopreneur Success Connections community at solopreneurcoach.com. Here you'll get exclusive access to our private, members-only community of business builders, free business building resources, and live online monthly training designed to accelerate your business success. Join us now at solopreneurcoach.com. Hey, Solopreneurs, it's Steve Combs again. You can find all the show notes for this episode at solopreneurcoach.com forward slash 031. And I want to tell you that Andy's unnamed project, it has a name now. It's called Brief, B-R-E-E-F. And he's actually right now looking for beta users. If you'd like to take a look at it, you'll find the link in the show notes page. I also want to tell you about the fact that Andy delivered an outstanding training all about email productivity, even if you don't use Active Inbox, for our Solopreneur Success Connections community back in September. If you missed that, you can get the recordings as a patron member. That's only $7 for your first month. Or you can at least join the membership for free for life, and you'll never miss another training again. Just sign up over at solopreneurcoach.com forward slash membership. And that link will also be in the show notes page, which is at solopreneurcoach.com forward slash 031. That's it for this episode. This is Steve Combs, the Solopreneur Coach, and I thank you for listening.